Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 Welcome to Tell Me the Story with Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us for a weekly study of the Bible as we read verse by verse with the original context and languages at the forefront, illuminating the stories at hand. In today's episode, we will be covering chapter 31 of Genesis, and this is one of those chapters where when we hear the text, how it presents itself, it may challenge the way that we have heard the text previously. I harp on this repeatedly in our podcast episodes, but it is all the more relevant for every time we come back to the biblical stories, because each time we hear the biblical stories, we think we know more. So when we come back, we take that understanding that we think we've garnered, and it influences the way we hear the text, which isn't a bad thing. Learning happens. Learning is a good thing. But we can't let the amount that we have learned and our intellect come in the way of hearing the text fresh and hearing details that we might have missed before. We have to remove ourselves from the text and hear what it is saying. And what it is saying about the character of Jacob in this chapter is extremely challenging for somebody like me and like many of you, I'm sure, who projects their ego into the story onto the protagonist of the story. Uh, And naturally, that will affect the way that we hear the characterization of that character. You know, we all want to be Peter Parker. We all want to be Superman. Do we all want to be Jacob? Maybe we might fall into that tendency simply because he is the focal character. But if you hear what the text is saying, you might hear that you are indeed Jacob. But the fact of the matter is, being Jacob is no good. So starting now in chapter 31 of Genesis, it says, Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Before we continue on in the reading, I want to emphasize something that is really easy to miss when reading this story passively. We must notice when God speaks and what exactly God says. Because when other characters are quoting God, the details don't always line up. And this is a interpretive rule that I have never really heard a lot of people talk about. We hear God speak, the narrator says, this is what God said, and then a character in the story says, God said to me, thusly. God said this to me. And it doesn't always line up. So notice this. God is the only reliable character in Scripture who holds up his end of every deal and every promise. He says very little here in verse 4. He says, return to the land of your fathers into your kindred, and I will be with you. That's it. 
Keep that in mind as we continue. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, The spotted one shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted, and if he said, The striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. But God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. Many of us are gullible when we hear stories. We want to take the things that the characters say at face value. That's what makes spy movies so enthralling. The character interacts with a lot of people who the audience are supposed to think are on the good side, only to find out later through various plot twists that they are in fact on the bad side. The audience thought that those characters were on the good side because they took the characters' words at face value and they trusted them. Audiences are supposed to be just gullible enough that plot twists work, but just smart enough to suspect a plot twist coming, therefore we generally take characters at their word. That's just the media we're exposed to. I say this all because we cannot be a gullible audience when hearing these stories. These are not our American sci-fi fantasy thrillers. They are different stories, told by different people with different mindsets. Jacob is claiming to his two wives here that it was God and God alone that made the flocks produce sheep for Jacob. But we know, according to the previous chapter, that Jacob set out different types of sticks, uh, remember shaved or unshaved birch and all these different woods, and those sticks influenced the offspring of the breeding flocks. We all know that God controls everything, and it is his will whether or not the sheep will even have offspring to begin with. But for all intents and purposes, within the literature, Jacob produced the type of sheep he wanted by the work of his own hands, because he was breeding them in a specific way, according to the literature, that produced sheep that were strong and would go to him and would rob Laban of strong sheep. Now, Jacob is deflecting the responsibility that that situation brought him onto God. He claims that it is because of God that he himself prospers and Laban does not. But it is not so. Jacob prospers because he is slick. He is a con man and he manipulated a situation to benefit himself. God will watch over him and protect him on his journey back home. That is what God said. God did not say anything about securing Jacob's wealth contrary to Jacob's claim in verse 11, where he tells Leah and Rachel about some vision he supposedly had in a dream where an angel of God spoke to him. This is Jacob retelling the communication he received directly from Yahweh in verse 4, except when he retells it, he adds a whole bunch of junk that wasn't actually said by God. So I recommend you either pull it up yourself and read it, or rewind in the podcast uh, and hear it for yourself. In verse 4 is God's commandment, and then in this passage that we just read, Jacob 
relays all of this information about this dream vision that he supposedly had, and the very last thing that he says is the commandment that God gave him. So he's adding all of this extra stuff to it when he dialogues about it with his wives. That's a fascinating point. The text is emphasizing the fact that Jacob is adding new content that hasn't been established earlier. Now, one could argue that this episode he is referring to must have happened off screen, but this is not a phenomenon we really see in Scripture. The Bible is known to repeat itself often, so if we wanted to legitimize what Jacob was saying here, it would have established the scene he is referring to earlier in the story. But in actuality, Jacob is introducing this himself. It's quite egregious, actually. I haven't heard a lot of people mention this, but it's fascinating that we hear Jacob's version of the story right after hearing the regular narration. This is another example where it's important to pay attention to these stories, especially when they are told to us more than once. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So in the same way that Jacob was characterized up until this point, even his wives seem to be only concerned with the material wealth they can secure for themselves out of this situation, claiming that all their father's wealth that God took away belongs to them, Leah and Rachel. I mean, just listen to them. They sound ridiculous. God took away Laban's wealth, so who does it belong to? Does it belong to God, the one who took it? No way. It belongs to Leah and Rachel. So then once all this dialogue of vanity, the dialogue about wealth and prosperity is out of the way, Jacob and his family actually get around to doing what God very plainly commanded way back in verse 4. Get going. This is, again, that quintessential city culture that is being represented here. It's a cycle. Instead of escaping this urban materialism, they simply take it with them by stealing it from their father's household. In any other cultural context of the time, this would have been seen as a triumph, but not so in scripture. The only acceptable situation is to be a shepherd in the wilderness. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property, and all he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Jacob had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. Laban is a bad guy, sure, but this situation was wrought by Jacob's own doing. Everything Jacob has secured has been through smooth talk and deal-making between him and Laban. Now, Jacob is playing the part of the victim, but he is by no means a victim. Let us not be mistaken. He has purchased the two daughters and flocks, and he agreed to stay for however long it took in order to secure those things that he wanted from Laban. Here in a moment, Jacob is going to talk about Laban changing his wages ten times and all this, but Jacob could have left at any time. His inheritance was never in Laban's household. His inheritance was back in the Canaanite wilderness. That is why in verse 4, 
God's only instruction was for Jacob to return to that land. The same way when God called Abraham out of Ur, away from his family, he simply said, get up, get going to the land that I will show you. He did not say, gather all your possessions and all of this. And you might say, well, it's implied that he would take all... No, it's not. It's not. The text is painfully detailed. The biblical literature is painfully drawn out, repetitive, granular, and boring. So if there is a detail missing, it's missing for a reason. God said nothing to Jacob about Laban or Jacob's wealth and the wives that he could receive from Laban and bringing them with him. None of this. We want the story to be easy. So there's just a good guy and a bad guy. Jacob the good guy, Laban the bad guy. But it's just not written that way. And if I may use a Southern American expression, Jacob and Laban are just two sides of the same cow turd. Jacob could have talked to Laban and informed him of his desire to leave, and they could have come to some agreement, but instead, Jacob conspires with Laban's daughters, and they run away together with all of Laban's stolen goods in hand. In fact, in verse 20, in the original Hebrew, it literally says that Jacob stole Laban's heart. Now, in modern English, this phrase might suggest that somebody is in love. You know, if you really like somebody, you say they stole your heart. But in Hebrew, even to this day, to steal someone's heart means you've wronged and defrauded them. Many English translators take the Hebrew lab or labab for heart in this phrase to be not really the heart but the mind, thus suggesting that Jacob stole Laban's center of intellect, his intellectual mind, thus meaning Jacob deceived Laban. However, the word is heart, and the heart is not just the biological house for the intellect in the Hebraic purview. It's the inner being, the essence of the person. It is the innermost self. And I hate to use philosophical terms, but in this context, such philosophical terms are more accurate than describing the Hebraic heart as the intellect. Therefore, I suggest that for Jacob to steal Laban's heart is to say that he completely swindled, cheated, or robbed this man. And even in modern Hebrew and Yiddish, there is a word gonif that refers to a cheater, a thief, or a trickster. And that word gonif comes from the verb ganav used in this verse, meaning to steal. That is the concept present here. I think it's similar to the expression in English, you screwed them over, but you know, with a heavier expletive than screw. It's to defraud someone and pang their heart. Why do I spend so much time fleshing this detail out? Well, because Bible translators have hidden away from you and made it inaccessible. Up until this point in the story, we have heard several clues contributing to Jacob's characterization, alluding to him being slick, both physically and behaviorally, like the serpent in the garden. And also like the serpent in the garden, he grasped the heel of his brother, the same way the serpent was said to bruise the heel of the son of Eve. These are just a couple details among many, but this one detail in chapter 31 about Jacob stealing Laban's heart is subtle, but it carries massive implications. It's this final blow. It's the nail in the coffin, the mic drop of who Jacob is as a person. He is a cheat. The text isn't alluding to anything anymore. It outright says that Jacob stole Laban's heart which again means that he cheated Laban. The original authors didn't want us to miss this fact. Jacob, the progenitor, the father, the namesake of the nation of Israel, 
is by all means a horrible, lying, cheating twerp. This horrible, lying, cheating twerp is the father of the primary group of people that the scriptures follow, and by extension, the people who subscribe to that religion, to that literature. What kind of book is that? It's making a concerted effort to make us dislike every important character that fathers the people who, again, are the protagonist and the subscribers to the literature. It's like the show Breaking Bad, in a way. The main character, Walter White, starts out good, but as the show progresses, he gets harder and harder to root for until you're left with this very challenging duality of wanting the best for him while also hoping he fails. And that is Jacob. He is the vessel for the inheritance God has planned to bless all humanity with. You want to be a son of Jacob, but he is acting like the serpent that beguiled the situation, which didn't bring blessing, it brought a curse upon humanity. It's a really tense dualism within the literature, and we have to hear it. It is there. This type of unique, subtle, nuanced storytelling isn't necessarily unique to human storytelling. So if the pieces are there, we have to look at them. This is the story of Jacob thus far. He is no superhero. He is not even an anti-hero. He is a villain. He's not someone you want to be like. He is a negative example, not a positive example. However, he is a negative example that God has promised to protect for the sake of blessing every human. And God keeps his promises and will use this villain to save countless lives, whether or not Jacob will ever be aware of it. That is the story. Exactly, and this is where hope is to be found in Scripture. The downfall of mankind is when we put this devotion due to God alone in powerful men and women who cannot handle that level of responsibility. Human beings will always fall short. We see this in our personal lives, and we see it in catastrophic ways throughout history. Absolute power will always corrupt. Absolutely. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days, and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs and tambourine and a lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt about in the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but he did not find the household gods. 
most of that was pretty straightforward, but I do have a couple of things to mention. First is that when it says Laban overtook Jacob at the beginning of the passage, it kind of sounds like he overtook him the same way an army overtakes a city. You know, I think in a way, in English, overtake and overturn uh, and overthrow have all kind of become synonyms in English, but the proper definition in English and the meaning of the Hebrew word simply means that Laban arrived or reached Jacob. The second thing I want to point out is that once again, when God speaks to one of these characters, it is a short and clear communication, and we have to compare that to what the characters say. God knows Laban's intentions, and he tells him not to speak good or bad upon Jacob. This is the second occurrence where the narrator of the text tells us, the listeners, exactly what God said so that we cannot be mistaken when characters later build upon it. Just like with God's commandment to Jacob in verse 4, this commandment from God to Laban will be twisted into something other than the simple and clear communication that it is. It's a striking detail, actually, that Laban is not the one who builds upon what God said uh, for his own benefit. Laban just wants some clarity, because we get the feeling at this point in the story that Laban is just hurt by what has happened. Perhaps he meant to do Jacob harm, but he received a commandment from God and decides to obey. So now he's just looking for answers, as anyone who has been robbed would do. However, Jacob makes up an excuse about being scared and losing his wives if he had told Laban his intentions to leave, but he assures him that anything stolen shall return to Laban if Laban says it is stolen. He sounds like the classic kid-did-something-wrong-but-got-caught kind of child. Even more so when we hear the temper tantrum he throws in the next passage. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I have been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you have required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was, by day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house, I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Right here, at the end of this passage, should be yet another red flag. Jacob is once again manipulating the reality of his protected station under God into something that serves only himself. The simple reality is that Laban obeyed God, therefore Laban did not harm Jacob. But upon learning this, Jacob acts like a theologian, and he fluffs it all up, uh, turning all of it into word soup, ultimately reducing the scriptural God into nothing more than a variable in his scheme, just like the way he reduced God to the stone at Bethel. The last phrase of this passage should be especially alarming. Jacob says, God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. I mean, really, Jacob? What's your affliction? 
You were so tired after robbing this man and making off with four of the young women from his household as your wives? You're weary from the labor of the last several years that you had absolutely no real need to commit yourself to? Jacob is acting like Jonah, whining and berating with lofty words and eloquence. He is also, once again, acting like the serpent, taking God's simple commandment to Laban and twisting it into vain ammunition that he uses to admonish Laban and throw himself a pity party. God, however, in this entire chapter, is only concerned with Jacob's safety and making sure that he makes it back to the land he is meant to be in in the first place, because of God's promise to Abraham. Not because Jacob acquired all this wealth, not to protect Jacob's family, not to protect Jacob's happiness. God is not concerned with these human disputes of wealth and family drama. The only characters concerned with such are the human characters, Jacob most of all. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for the children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar, and Jacob said to his kinsmen, Gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Yegar Sahaduta, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Galid and Mitzpah, for he said, The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Jacob, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. So in this section, we have a really interesting moment where Laban and Jacob make a covenant with each other, but they have different names for it according to their respective languages. Laban is the city-dwelling Aramean, so naturally he uses Aramaic. This word is Yegar Sahaduta, coming from the word Sahed, which means witness. Jacob is a Bedouin, despite not behaving like one all the time, so he uses Hebrew, the language of the shepherds. So he calls it Galid, from Galal, meaning a heap, and Ed, which means a witness. Why is the Bible laboring to use these two languages here? It's not necessarily needed unless there's a bigger point being made. I would venture to guess that the scriptural authors are making a point that this covenant is imperfect at its roots. In other words, Jacob and Laban are still at odds. They have their own names for their own side of the covenant. Contrast this with the covenant Abraham made with Abimelech. Only Hebrews used. The introduction of Aramaic here is intentionally placed to show that Jacob and Laban are still acting according to their own self-interests. This is just my opinion, but it makes sense according to the context. Despite this, however, 
they are still able to make peace, and Jacob is finally released from Laban's servitude. On the other hand, Laban is now free from Jacob's thievery and destructive influence. In the coming chapters, we will continue to see how Jacob's household will mold the scriptural narrative in order to illumine the overarching message for all humanity. God bless you all, and we'll see you next week. This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network.